Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Organ and Tissue Donation in partnership with Donate Life. I'm your host, Michael Billings, and it's a special time on the calendar for Donate Life because from July 25th to August 1st, we celebrated Donate Life Week. And as part of this important initiative, Donate Life is running the great registration race through all of July and August. The aim? To encourage up to 100,000 more Australians to join the Australian Organ Donor Register. Before I get to today's guest, a couple of episodes ago, I interviewed Andrew Conway, who was waiting on a heart transplant. He texted me last week to tell me that he finally got the magical call. He's had his transplant, and after a couple of rough days, he was up and about and feeling great and very appreciative. I can't tell you how happy it made me to get that text from him. Everyone at Donate Life Victoria wishes him and his family the absolute best. I'll get to today's guest shortly, but before I get to that, I just want to remind you that I do this podcast in the hope that after listening, you'll do two things. Sign up to become an organ donor at donatelife.gov.au. It only takes a minute and all you need is a Medicare card. Also, talk to your family about your desire to be an organ donor. Both those things are just as important as each other, and just one organ or tissue donor can transform the lives of many people. I'll remind you at the end of the episode, but for now, here's my guest for today, Dr. Sam Radford, the Deputy State Medical Director for Donate Life Victoria. Dr. Radford, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you and talking to you and your listeners. Now, you're the Deputy State Medical Director at Donate Life Victoria. What does your role involve? Well, Michael, I'm at Donate Life nominally two days a week. Um, and when I'm not based at Donate Life, I'm actually an intensive care specialist at the Austin Hospital. My role at Donate Life, I, I get to be both direct and clinical. I get to help advise on the suitability or otherwise of potential organ donors. I get to help uh, our nursing staff navigate the complexities of, of a, a weird and complex hospital system. I get to work in liaising with transplant teams, either during cases or when we're evaluating whole programs. I get to have a large focus on data. That's been a big role for me lately and trying to sort of dissect all the different quality metrics that help us improve as a service. And I also get to participate nationally around helping shape the policy direction and on a, a large variety of sort of different governance committees. Between your role at Donate Life Victoria and your role at the Austin, those are two massive jobs to have. Is it hard juggling the two? Uh it's no secret. Intensive care is a really exhausting clinical pursuit. We've, it's called intensive for a reason. And so it's great to have an other, and this is a really fulfilling other, being able to do work that helps families that I interact with in the intensive care setting around death and dying, as well as around needing transplants, being able to guarantee that we've got really effective processes for getting, uh, living up to people's wishes around death and and dying and, and possibilities of organ donation. It's really, really fulfilling to do that. Now, the name of the podcast is Let's Talk Organ and Tissue Donation. So could you tell us how common or how rare organ donation actually is? It's a lot rarer than people think. As I'm sure you're aware, 100% of us will die. And lots of the talk today is going to be about death and dying. So 100% of us die, but we've got to die in an environment and in a particular way that makes the donation of our organs possible. So it's really only about 2% of people that die in that circumstance. And I suppose really the, the way that happens is we need our organs to effectively be supported by mechanical or, or, or chemical supports and for those supports to be able to be turned off relatively promptly 
and for death to either have already occurred or for death to occur pretty quickly afterwards. And the vast majority of people, when we die, we actually have this slow winding down over hours, days or weeks. But for donation to work, for donation transplantation to work, that death needs to really happen in seconds, minutes or hours at the upper limit uh, if we haven't already confirmed it. So there's two really different ways to be declared dead. There's the uh, circulatory death manner and circulatory death is when your heart stops beating, when your blood is no longer pumping around and your organs stop functioning. And circulatory death is what most of us, the the lay uh, population, consider to be death. There's another um, construct uh, and another legal definition of death, and that's brain death. And when the flow of blood has irreversibly, and that's a key word, it, it can't be changed, when it's irreversibly stopped going to all parts of the brain, then we're able to confirm either clinically or using radiologic tests or both that the person has become brain dead. So the two pathways to being a donor are really circulatory death or, or brain death. And with in terms of sort of the numbers around those, we know that in Victoria last year in 2020, there was about 131 donors who, who donated through the deceased pathway. And it, it breaks down to a two-thirds, one-third. About two-thirds of those would have been through the brain-dead pathway and about one-third were, were through the, the donation after circulatory death. So what sort of numbers are we talking that are actually able to go on to donate an organ or several organs or tissue? So, yeah, last year in Victoria, there's 131 donors. I think across the country, it was around 460. They're the numbers that went on and, and did it. In terms of potential, and look, apologies if this sounds like sort of a production line or a factory uh, way of thinking, that's absolutely not what we want to come across to, to families, but we think about upstream and downstream and, and that upstream, the reality is people have to die. If people aren't dying and they aren't dying in intensive cares, then we don't have that potential. And we really, in terms of overall numbers of people dying in ICU, that that changes year on year. 2020 looks like it was a different year and we had fewer people dying in intensive care. And we're going to be watching closely as this pandemic drags on into its second year uh, to see whether you know, those differences continue. Which organs actually can be donated? Again, this is going to sound a bit like a shopping list, uh, and but it, I, I hope that what the answer really sort of captures the, the breadth and of need and the breadth of possibility that, that clever transplant teams are able to do. So the, the organs, we've got a left and a right kidney. We've got a liver, which has got two lobes. We've got a left and a right lungs. We've got a heart, uh, either as a whole heart or, or as its uh, components, the, the valves in particular. We can donate our pancreas either whole or we can donate the islet cells. They're the, they're the really special cells that help make insulin. And in some rare circumstances, we can even donate our intestines. 
you can, the reason I've listed out left and right is that we can absolutely give, uh, you know, one kidney to one recipient and one kidney to another. So, uh, and lungs, though usually given as a pair, can be given as a single lung. If Particularly if one lung was damaged, it might mean that they can still go on and be a lung donor. Uh, sometimes lungs go together with hearts. Heart-lung donation can happen. And livers... Um, can, if they're the right size, livers can be split. And so it's not uncommon for, say, a small adult and a child to be the recipient of, of one single liver. Now, you talked a bit there about the heart and liver and how different parts might go to different recipients. Are there other organs that can be done with, like the heart valve that you mentioned? Absolutely, Michael. So the heart valves fall into the general uh, category of tissue donation. And so tissue um, donation is a bit different to organ donation. Organ donation happens with a really fast ticking clock and we've got to get these organs from one person to the next quickly. Tissue donation has a lot more processing time and, and careful storage of tissues. And so the, the, the tissues that can be um, stored and then um, transplanted later include the valves of the heart, pericardial tissue, which is sort of the lining around the heart that can be used as really important patches in, in surgical work when there's been inadvertent damage to, to uh, big blood vessels. There can be sort of the the root of the aorta can be the main vessel coming out of the heart can be can be donated alongside valves. Other other blood vessels, so veins in particular, can help repair uh, vessels that have been damaged by disease or extensive surgery. Uh, you can donate bone, and I'm I'm not necessarily talking about whole great big lengths of bone, but but milled up bone as as well. Tendons and ligaments can be really important donations that can go on to help people recover from significant uh, injuries um, and skin. Skin's essential uh, to help burns victims in recovery. So a skin bank is a key part of what, what our tissue bank does. And then the eye as well um, has the capacity to donate the cornea, which is like the windscreen at the front of the eye, or the sclera, which is the white of our eye, can help rebuild uh, eyeballs that have been ravaged by disease there. Now, people that listen to this podcast every week will have heard some stories from people with varying conditions, some of them very, very rare. But tell us about some of the illnesses that might lead to someone needing an organ transplant. There are definitely you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of different types of illnesses. And I suppose the best way is to go through it sort of organ by organ. Again, it, it sounds like a shopping list, but there's, there's lots of different ways to end up being considered for a transplant. So heart failure um, is uh, your heart muscle not pumping well, and that can be a viral infection such as a disease called myocarditis, or you could be born with uh, valves that just aren't working well. Um, you could have any manner of heart disease, whether it be ischemic heart disease or other uh, problems affecting the strength of the muscle contraction that leave you stuck and, and not able to push the heart, not able to, to push the blood around the body sufficiently. So those are the sort of um, pathways that lead someone to being considered for heart transplantation. Lung transplants, there's uh, 
the, the biggest group of, of people getting lung transplants would certainly be the cystic fibrosis group, so a disease that uh, often impacts people through their childhood and early adulthood and, and used to stop people growing into adulthood. And, and now transplantation has been a real you know, lifesaver and life prolonger for, for, such, for such people. Kidney failure, there's lots of different ways to get kidney failure and dialysis, whether that be diabetes, stones, uh, immune conditions such as glomerulonephritis, they can all ravage the kidneys and, and leave you otherwise stuck on dialysis. Uh, our, our liver's got lots of different ways of, um, of, of doing us in and, and that can affect small children if they haven't developed the ducts properly, a condition called biliary atresia. Um, there are lots of uh, different autoimmune conditions that can see adults in particular have liver failure that is really not amenable to any supports. We don't have a, a dialysis as it is for livers. Uh, people can have um, all sorts of metabolic disease in their liver or even inflammatory disease such as that caused by alcohol, uh, that caused by different viral hepatitis and those can all leave the liver very, very damaged. And even though individuals might have um, done their very best to try and look after themselves and improve their liver function, they can still end up ravaged and, and needing support from a transplant. That's the liver, I suppose, pancreas as well. Um, particularly there, that's really important for people who've got type 1 diabetes, so the sort of, sort of diabetes where you can't make insulin and so needing the, the cells to make that insulin for you. Um, particularly when pancreas is given alongside a kidney, you can cure not only someone's kidney disease but can fix the underlying problem that's got them there in terms of diabetes. And as I alluded to before, um, giving corneas to people, the very front of the eye, um, that's, that cornea can help restore sight to people that have been injured, whether that by, be by trauma or chemical burns, or if they've had a, a genetic condition. Um, and as we expanded on as well, the, the different tissues such as heart valves can be used at all ages, whether it be really young children in congenital surgery or adults needing to, who've had years and years of, of valvular heart disease, they can all benefit from, from heart valves. Let's talk numbers for a minute. Australia's population is almost 26 million at the moment. Of that, what's the potential deceased organ donor population? So as I was saying before, you, you've got to die to, to be a deceased donor. Um, and what we're looking at numbers-wise is about 170,000 Australians dying each year. Um, and about half of them, 80,000 people die in hospital. So we certainly can't look at those that are not dying in hospital. So they're, they're lost to the opportunity of donation right from the get-go. Of the 80,000 people dying in hospital, about 1,200, 1,250 of them would be classified as potential organ donors. And we'd, we'd break that down on the basis of age and, and organ supports and their location of care being somewhere that does organ support, such as an ICU or briefly in an emergency department. And so that, that becomes the potential pool of donors. What we're striving for is to make sure that the donation teams get face-to-face -face with these um, donor families or the donors individually themselves before death and dying and before the pathways to death and dying are, are set in stone and that 
then an informed conversation can take place alongside the clinical staff and the donation staff and clinical staff can work together to make sure that all of these uh, 1,250 different families get a chance to consider donation in a way that's right for them. So uh, I'm pleased to report that a, a very large percentage, but not 100%, so we still need to do a touch better, but a very large percentage uh, of last year, was it was 1,170 families across Australia out of that 1,250 got approached. And then when that approach happens, uh, essentially there are two outcomes. Either a family says yes or a family says no, and, and that's how we calculate our, our consent rate. And last year in 2020, that consent rate was 58%. That's a lot lower than what we'd seen historically. And uh, certainly I know in my own experience in Victoria, I'm sure there were a lot of factors contributing to that, but we did these conversations with families that hadn't had that um, time at the bedside. They'd been locked out just as, as many of us had been locked down during periods of lockdown. And, and when we're as clinical staff trying to be helpful and compassionate and supportive to these families, to do that when you're covered head to toe in plastic and so are they, makes it a lot more challenging to read emotions and to communicate your own empathy with people. So that was um, that's really challenging, and I suspect that's been a a significant contributor to to this downturn in consent. But uh, we're hoping that as general conditions improve, that consent rates will uh, head back to where they were, and that um, we can live up to the sort of stated support that that families have for donation. I know in the recent uh, ABC Australia Talks survey, they've re-surveyed people around this question, and it sounds like about 81% of, uh, of Australians are, have expressed their support for, for donation. I imagine in your organisation, a big battle you have is with misinformation and myths. I mean, even you saying before and reiterating that you've got to be dead to be considered to be a donor. Donate Life isn't just going to come knock on your door if you sign up and ask you for a kidney. You've got to pass away in the right way. So I was hoping to go over some myths that might be out there. We'll start with one I've got here, which is organ and tissue donation disfigures the body. You know what disfigures the body? Death and dying disfigures the body. And organ donation is an operation that occurs around that time. When I was a, a younger medical student, I did my honours in forensic pathology, and it's a fascinating parallel universe. But I can tell you that there is change from life to death and that, that when our bodies die, we lose all of that sort of skin tone and our elasticity goes away and we change colour. We're not these lovely, warm, pink human beings that that people knew uh, were a, a, a paler shade of ourselves. So certainly around that time of death, we our bodies do change. The disfigurement that is associated with organ donation is really around scarring, and that's done with care and attention. And the scarring from an organ donation operation will absolutely fit under your good clothes and will allow you to look your very best that you can in the hands of the funeral operators. Uh, and what's really important is to know that the uh, surgical teams that are involved in donation have nothing but the highest respect 
for donors and their families. And you get treated at the end of a donation operation exactly the way you get treated at the end of any other operation. So care and attention is put into the needlework, the, the sewing and suturing, and care and attention is put into the dressing and, and care of such patients. So no, a, a dead donor doesn't look the same as they did beforehand, but our aims is to make them look no different than they would at any other time after death. Another myth I've seen out there is that if you're a registered donor, doctors won't try as hard to save your life. What do you say to that? Well, I'm answering on behalf of all my ICU fellow doctors. Uh, We don't come to work to see people die in front of us. We come to work to make people better. Uh, And we strive to support failing organs and saving lives is absolutely ingrained into everything that we do. And when we can see that we can't save someone's life, we don't make uh, such decisions under the influence of donation intent or otherwise. In fact, we don't even make them alone. Um, the decisions to stop organ supports are, are shared between multiple specialists and we try and keep that very much separate from consideration of, of donation possibilities. Another, I don't want to say myth, but another hurdle that uh, might be applicable for part of the community, they might just think they're too old to be an organ donor. What would you say to those people? Well, those people sound like my parents and I say to them, no, 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 you're not too old. Um, In fact, age is really not a barrier at all. Though we have historically had age cutoffs, the great thing about medicine is we keep pushing at those boundaries. And maybe that's because we as the clinicians all get older and we don't want to think of ourselves as being too old. But maybe that's also because we see that what, what used to happen when you were 70 or 80 is changing and that Uh, we've got lots of vital elderly members of the community. The oldest donor that I'm aware of in Australia was someone who donated their liver at age 89. And I'm also aware of a liver that uh, is happily existing, I believe, still, uh, where the combined age of both the liver donor and the liver recipient now totals well over 150 years old. So there are amazing stories that work for the right people um, and it's far less about age and it's far more about organ function as well as your general cardiovascular health. The last one I've got and I've heard this a hundred times from people who think they might have partied a bit hard in their younger days or whatever, they think they're not healthy enough to donate because of lifestyle choices they've made. Um, everyone's allowed to make their own lifestyle choices, Michael. You make yours, I make mine, uh, and we all pay the consequences, but your organs don't have to pay the consequences necessarily, or not all of your organs. If, for instance, I drink too much and I do some damage to my liver, you can guarantee that my kidneys will be well hydrated. So though my liver might be damaged and not suitable, well, it's entirely possible that a donation specialist, when they're assessing me, might say, actually, kidney function's all right. Equally, someone who's got bad lungs might turn out to have just fine um, pancreas cells. Uh, And so... I would say rather than prejudging yourself and ruling yourself out, I would encourage people to count themselves in and let the um, experts explore it and decide. And it's not just about what is your um, burden of disease at any one time. It's, it's not just matching the donor. It's about matching what is the recipient's burden of disease. So even things like infectious diseases or viral diseases such as hepatitis or the risk of such diseases aren't necessarily the deal breakers that they used to be. 
and that careful exploration of those for the right recipient means that all manner of patients will be considered. So the, the simple message there is don't rule yourself out, you know, count yourself in and, and let us assess carefully and properly and give you and your family the right up-to-date answer. Now, my understanding is that while the majority of Australians support organ and tissue donation, only one in three are registered on the Australian Organ Donor Register. The last question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast is what would you say to someone who is considering or unsure about signing up to be an organ donor? Well, what would I say to them? Well, donating or planning to do so is a really positive act and it should get celebrated. And if after you take in all the information, you think about it, if donation really aligns with your values, then take a minute to register. That's really all it takes online is that minute. But I strongly recommend that you invest more than a minute in actually chatting with your family and your loved ones about it. Um, And I guarantee it'll take more than a minute to talk through your thoughts and views there. And what happens is whether they agree with you or not, they're definitely going to understand your decision better. And you have absolutely helped them, the people you love, for the weird and wonderful and horrible eventuality that if you do die, even the the possibility or where the possibility of donation exists, you'll have taken a burden off their shoulders. You'll have made it really clear what your thoughts and values are. And you might even prompt them to have a think about their own position and how they can go about explaining it. So take a minute to register and take more than a minute to talk to your family about it. Dr. Radford, I know you're a very busy man with the different hats you wear, so I cannot thank you enough for joining me on the podcast today. Michael, I'm really glad to have the opportunity. Thanks very much indeed. I hope after hearing Dr. Radford, the Deputy State Medical Director for Donate Life Victoria, you might go to donatelife.gov.au and sign up to become an organ donor as part of Donate Life Week and also talk to your family about your wishes. If you enjoyed the podcast, then give it a review or a rating, maybe even share it on your social media. I hope it swayed you to sign up to become an organ donor and I hope you'll make the decision to donate life.